Welcome back to one last special SCOTUS confirmation edition of the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. Today was the fourth and final day of confirmation hearings for D.C. Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh, now separated from the title of Supreme Court Justice by only a committee recommendation and a full Senate vote, both seemingly likely to issue from the Republican-controlled body. After being the focal point of two extended days of Senate questioning, Brett Kavanaugh was not heard from during the hearing's finale. Instead, 26 witnesses, among them law professors, veteran attorneys, ABA representatives, former Kavanaugh clerks, a pastor, and some young people, offer testimony on why, in their views, the nominee from just outside the Beltway should or should not ascend to Washington's most prized legal perch. Most of the same themes that dominated the first three days were again aired, Many legal, the nominee's stance on executive power, abortion, civil rights, the Second Amendment, environmental protections, originalism, but others not, like Kavanaugh's talents as a basketball coach and his affection for Budweiser and hamburgers. But unlike on previous days, some of those theoretical and technical constitutional questions grappled over became associated with the real Americans they impact. A Parkland survivor recounted the February shooting in grim detail, an asthmatic Maine teenager demonstrated the public health impacts of air pollution, and a 13-year-old with a birth defect championed pre-existing condition protections in healthcare law. To help us review all the most salient testimony, we're joined now by Anna Rose Matheson, a partner at the California Appellate Law Group in San Francisco, a former Supreme Court clerk under Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and incidentally, we might mention in passing, prompted by the president's speech yesterday, unlike Justice Gorsuch, she in fact graduated first in her law school class. Anna Rose, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here, Brian. Okay, uh, so diving into a a recap of this last day of, of Brett Kavanaugh's hearings, um, Judge Kavanaugh himself was not, I'm not sure actually if he was present, but he certainly was not the focus of these, uh, this day of hearings. It was several panels of witnesses giving testimony as to they viewed as the, the merits or maybe the demerits of the nominee. Maybe first off, generally, what did you find most interesting about this day? And as to the approach here, obviously kind of the, the typical focus, the typical you know, substance of, of these hearings tends to focus on the, the questioning of the, the nominee. What what purpose do these witness testimonies, uh, are they intended to serve? What sort of function do you think they, they do serve? What are your thoughts generally on, on that? Well, they really highlight some of the major issues at stake in this confirmation. And, and I think they're really in some ways more important and in some ways less important than the, the three previous days of confirmation hearings. Um, so the the candidate himself was not the subject of questioning. So you didn't get to hear his views in the same way you did in the last three days. Instead, it was over, you know, a couple dozen witnesses who were talking about the, their perspective on how he would be as a jurist and what he would bring to the court. There were witnesses on both sides. There were several who were supporting him. There were some from more impartial organizations uh, like the American Bar Association talking about his general qualifications. And then there were some selected by the Democrats to really highlight the big issues that they think are at stake in this confirmation battle, reproductive rights, environment, gun control, equality. The highest profile witness of the day or leading up to to this day of hearings, the witness that attracted the most attention is former White House counsel to, to President Nixon, John Dean, a witness for for the Democratic side. He brought up a, a few interesting lines of, of argument and attack against 
nominee. One being his view that, like a lot of Democratic senators have said this week, the incomplete documentary record porting the nominee because of some withholding of his documents from his time in, in the Bush White House um, would leave a cloud that would linger over his subsequent tenure on, on the bench, much like Dean said, has followed uh, Clarence Thomas post the hearings involving his accused sexual harassment of Anita Hill. And also, like Dean said, uh, a cloud that's, that, that did follow Justice Rehnquist because of what Dean described as false statements or dissembling he had made in a couple of different confirmation hearings. I'd be curious to know, one, I hadn't really heard or known about the Rehnquist stuff, but also if you think the potential is there for the cloud to, to follow Brett Kavanaugh after these hearings based on on that point, the the fact that plenty of documents were withheld by uh, the Republican side and other parties as well. Well, there absolutely will be a cloud. I'm I'm just not sure if it will matter much. Um, and I'm not sure if this if the withholding documents and complete vetting cloud um, is really rises to the same level of um, you know the, the potential cloud or issue over over Thomas in large part because that element of the cloud seems to be a procedural element that's not on him. That is, it's not something that is. Judge Kavanaugh's fault, um, in the same way that the allegations concerning Justice Thomas are, are considered to be, are, you know, are, are actions that he actually took. So the leaving the documents out will certainly be a cloud, but I'd probably liken it more to the cloud over Justice Gorsuch, um, from the Garland nomination on the fact that many people view that seat as one that was stolen, um, through political shenanigans. Um, so, you know, there certainly, I think, will be some degree of a cloud, some degree of people saying, oh, we didn't get the documents. But once you're confirmed, which it seems in all likelihood he will indeed be confirmed, you've got you hold office. You know, you've got life tenure. And I think that the focus will pretty quickly shift to his decisions. You know, potentially someone will. Um, in, you know, in articles, if he writes a major piece on some issue where documents later come out that would have been relevant, that will certainly be discussed. Um, but I don't think it would, it, it will affect much. That's somewhat different from the cloud. I think there were some accusations that some of his statements might have constituted perjury. And that's, that's kind of a different issue and more, sounds more like the, the cloud that's you know mentioned to be against Rehnquist, although uh, frankly I'm I'm on the same page as you. I, I hadn't heard of that issue either, and I clerked on the court at the time Rehnquist was the chief justice, and I I hadn't known that was an issue. Mm-hmm. I, I think to some degree after the justices are on the court for a while, much of the at least procedural things regarding their confirmation hearings tend to fade from view. I think the Justice Thomas things are an exception because that is the sort of thing that can become embedded in popular culture, you know, is is a subject of Saturday Night Live skits in a way that I don't think failure to turn over a, a full set of documents would be, you know, maybe this week on Saturday Night Live, but certainly not in a year that would not make for, you know, funny drama. And 
And I think the last reason that it probably won't end up with that much long-term traction, I'm not saying it shouldn't end up with long-term traction, but I think it probably won't end up with long-term traction, is because we do actually have a ton of info on Judge Kavanaugh. Um, We have a very long paper trail. This is not someone who is otherwise totally unknown and all the documents are are being withheld. We actually do have uh, quite a few documents. We don't have them all or anywhere near the amount we probably should have. But, you know, he's written law review articles. He's written tons of opinions. He's done speeches. We have some of the documents from the executive branch that Senator, you know, Booker released and, and, and others. So there certainly is a good deal of information. And everything that has come out so far has seemed fairly consistent with what everyone knows about Judge Kavanaugh. He is, you know, a smart, conservative justice. One theme that definitely persisted throughout out the week was some senators trying to get, get a handle on Judge Kavanaugh's theory of executive power and how broadly it extends and how resistant it is to sort of investigation and, and indictment and also subpoena. On, on that specific point of, of subpoenas, uh, of course, that was central to the U.S. v. Nixon case decided just before Nixon left office. It's a case that Brett Kavanaugh said during the hearings he thought was rightly decided. Sort of provocatively, Dean said he didn't believe Brett Kavanaugh, that he actually does think the case uh, was correctly decided, and that Brett Kavanaugh's view might instead be that a particular type of subpoena could not be brought against a sitting president. Uh, This was a point jumped in on by Sheldon Whitehouse when he asked John Dean a couple of questions. He uh, surmised or he suspected he said that perhaps Brett Kavanaugh was creating himself a bit of wiggle room sort of semantically or on a legal technicality because the U.S. v. Nixon case was based on one particular type of subpoena, a trial court subpoena, whereas one, say, coming from Special Counselor Robert Mueller might be a different type of subpoena. Did you catch that? And uh, do you have any thoughts on the kind of distinction there, what it might mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Caught that. And it was a very interesting distinction that both the you know, White House initially flagged and, and then Dean embraced. And and I think it has a lot of traction because everyone agrees Judge Kavanaugh is an, a very smart and very careful lawyer. And so when he was talking about this U.S. v. Nixon case, which is you know one of the foundational cases of our understanding of separation of powers and how one branch can ask another for for documents and given that it kind of comes out of the fallout of Nixon and Watergate, I think many people believe it was rightly decided. Um, I think the fact that when Kavanaugh was now embracing Nixon and saying he thought it was one of the greatest moments in American judicial history, that he might essentially be being lawyerly about it. He might be essentially preserving wiggle room for himself um, because he's saying Nixon dealt with a trial court subpoena. And of course, you know, if the SDNY or Mueller issued a subpoena, it wouldn't be a trial court subpoena likely. It would likely be a grand jury subpoena. Um, And that there's essentially ways that he could talk about how he believes in Nixon and then, you know, later have come up with some sort of apparently principled reason to distinguish a situation where a subpoena was issued by a grand jury to President Trump. Um, so, I mean, I think that was definitely something interesting to flag. I don't know whether it was a conscious attempt on 
under the Kavanaugh's part to essentially preserve wiggle room for himself. Um, several Democratic senators have expressed essentially concern over the fact that Kavanaugh wasn't on the initial list for nomination and he didn't come to be essentially a favorite until after the Mueller investigation had taken off. That is, after this issue of whether or not a special prosecutor could go after a sitting president, could um, send a subpoena, could indict potentially a sitting president, um, became the forefront. And, and obviously, as, as everyone knows, that gets under um, President Trump's skin. Um, and, and so it wasn't until after that issue really came to the fore that Judge Kavanaugh's name really started being floated as a, as a top contender. And so I think that is something that concerned um, several of the Democrats, and they, they expressed a, a, you know, a thought that potentially maybe some of these other documents that haven't been turned over have even stronger views. Um, I know one that just came out uh, last week, I think on Sunday, um, talked about how you know, in 1999, Kavanaugh was expressing reservations about U.S. v. Nixon and you know, writing about how potentially Nixon was wrongly decided and took away the power of the president. Um, and that the concern might be, you know, maybe he's just naturally shifted in time. Um, maybe as he um, has come onto the judiciary and spent more time as a judge, he has, you know, had an increased respect for the power of the judiciary to issue these sorts of subpoenas. But maybe this is essentially one of President Trump's litmus tests, you know, and he is just trying to cover things up in this in this sort of hearing. Maybe or maybe not. Coincidentally, Rudy Giuliani issued a pretty flat statement yesterday suggesting the president would not issue responses to written or, or other type of questioning from the special counsel. So we might get our uh, chance to, to find out an answer to this subpoena question. In fact, moving on to, to some of the other witnesses that were were present today. One Yale law professor, Akhil Amar, supporting Kavanaugh, made the point, I think pretty directly to the Democratic side, that basically they, they wouldn't get anyone better than Judge Kavanaugh. And one of the reasons was because originalism as a judicial philosophy doesn't itself have any allegiance to one particular political party or the other. And so it might lead him to be a more favorable judge to some maybe liberal or progressive uh, issues than even perhaps uh, Justice Kennedy was. I thought that was a bit of a curious statement because some of the times that Justice Kennedy provided the swing vote for the more left-leaning side of the court, it wasn't some pretty you know, central progressive themes like reproductive rights and, and LGBT rights and things along those lines. I'd be curious your thoughts on sort of the supposition that originalism is party neutral and that Brett Kavanaugh could perhaps be a more liberally favorable uh, judge than than Kennedy. Yeah, I, I don't see that, frankly. The It is certainly true that um, originalism doesn't necessarily have any political valence. And I think we've, we've seen that, right? Justice Scalia followed originalism, textualism to positions that were often aligned with the more liberal judges, justices on issues of criminal rights. And he essentially was following his set of beliefs and, and getting to a position that, that was you know, more liberal or more traditionally liberal than 
one might have assumed he would want to go to. And, and you've certainly seen, I mean, there's a, a really interesting case this year where Justice Thomas wrote one opinion and Justice Gorsuch wrote the dissent, both applied originalism, but both came to opposite conclusions, looking at essentially the same sources, debating a privy council opinions from hundreds of years ago and trying to figure out what in this issue of patent law, and they reached opposite conclusions. So that was that was one without a political kind of component um, or much of a political component. But so it is certainly true that originalism can go both ways. Um, but I think if what you're looking at is these these cases where Justice Kennedy was furthest along the spectrum towards the kind of embracing civil rights. So gay rights, reproductive rights, those are, are, are ones where it seems very unlikely that originalism would lead you to a more liberal position than what Justice Kennedy embraced. We certainly haven't really ever seen any avowed originalist um, come to particularly liberal conclusions on those issues. Um, it, you know, it's certainly possible that he might end up coming to more you know, traditionally liberal views on, on, on some areas, on, you know, on, on First Amendment or on some criminal rights. But I think it's pretty far-fetched to think that, you know, hey, it makes sense to embrace him because he has a philosophy that could, in theory, come out to a way that is very liberal when there has been no sign in his prior judicial opinions that he is inclined to go that way. And in fact, several signals that he is um, very much not that uh, certainly in issues of reproductive rights, his philosophy does not take him anywhere near the kind of civil rights position of Justice Kennedy. So on that specific point that originalism might lead him to be a favorable judge to progressive interests, I, I really don't see it. On, on the broader point that, you know, Democrats won't get anyone better, you know, that one's, that one's a little bit harder. I certainly don't think if for some reason um, Judge Kavanaugh's nomination wasn't didn't go through, you know, which I think at this point, would, there'd have to be something pretty serious and totally unexpected that came out in order to have that happen. Um, I, I think he is definitely on this solid track to being confirmed. But if some, you know, absolute bombshell dropped, I can't see a world in which President Trump nominates someone, oh, okay, well, then I'll just nominate a nice centrist and uh, make everyone happy, right? That, that's not going to happen. Um, so, it, you know, it certainly is true that this might be about as good as Democrats could um, could get, you know, and I think it is definitely, it is it is a very different question whether or not Democrats want to vote for him, whether he's qualified. And I think everyone pretty much agrees Judge Kavanaugh is a smart, careful, ethical judge. You know, the, the ABA had several representatives today. Um, they voted him yeah, honestly, the extremely qualified, which is their their highest rating, or well qualified, their their highest rating, and I think no one has ever accused him of not being smart, of not being a good jurist. Um, and so, I mean, I think it is definitely right for Akhil Amar and other noted appellate advocates like Lisa Blatt, who have spoken out in favor of 
nomination that, you know, if, if it is a foregone conclusion, it, it, they're probably arguing it better. And, and but there certainly is something to be said for, you know, I'd rather have a, you know, a smart, principled, ethical judge, even if I fundamentally disagree with his views on some issues. You know, that that philosophy is certainly something that I I, I understand why several liberal advocates are proposing. One, maybe sort of two parallel lines of inquiry traversed throughout the week were to what extent the judge would respect precedent and also his stance, the area of law regarding reproductive rights and the ex- and access to abortion. Um, one witness today, Rochelle Garza, who I believe is the court-appointed attorney for an unaccompanied minor in Texas, 17-year-old, um, who last year had sought an abortion and gone through, I believe, all, all the necessary requirements the state imposed, including getting a, a judicial bypass to the usual uh, parental consent requirement, and sort of sim- oversimplifying it, perhaps, as Garza said, that Judge Kavanaugh's uh, ruling in this matter would have kind of delayed the, the process and, and did, in fact, do so for, I think, about a, a month. Her larger point was that he, he didn't seem in that instance to to properly apply the precedent, including Roe, but also a more recent one, Whole Woman's Health, um, a case from Texas, which uh, Kennedy had been on um, the, the more liberal side of, and which sort of re-dealt with the issue of, of undue burden. Um, what were your thoughts there? Is that um, you know, shedding light on perhaps less consistency with Judge Kavanaugh applying precedent, or is it more of a maybe issue just specific to that area of the law, which, you know, judging from, if not the hearings, then plenty of the documents that have come out, seems to be an area where Kavanaugh might be hoping or at least uh, inclined to to change the direction that the court, court has taken the last generation. Yeah, I think that the, the Garza case really kind of illustrates how reproductive rights law can be chipped away. And that, you know, the advocates that I think are, are very excited for Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation of the Supreme Court, the pro-life advocates who are hoping to um, use that to try to chip away, can essentially do it without needing to explicitly have the court reject Roe v. Wade. They may, they may try to do that, although I'm not, I'm not sure whether the Supreme Court will want to take on a case um, and of course, they have the ability to control their docket. Whether they'd want to take on a case that directly overrules Roe versus Wade, but that case where Rochelle Garza represented James Doe is kind of a really good example of how a judge can chip away and use, you know, write write an opinion that looks like it's considering the right factors and looks like looks like a thorough judicial opinion but yet read presidents in a, in a way that creates a really kind of crabbed view of these reproductive rights. So he didn't talk about whole woman's health, which is the, you know, the most recent case on abortion. It was a five, three, very contentious and, and really kind of refer, reaffirmed the, the requirements and what the, what courts should be doing when they're analyzing the case. Should you should look at whether there's a substantial obstacle, um, an undue burden on abortion access. He didn't look at that. He didn't really, in, in Judge Kavanaugh's opinion, didn't really look at the burden on Jane Doe's rights. 
um, the state had ordered a judicial bypass, but still, you know, her parents had to be notified, even though she, there was testimony in the record that when her older sister had become pregnant, uh, her parents had beaten her so severely that she miscarried. So there was, there was all this kind of, this evidence and, and, and already a judicial bypass that had checked the boxes and still kind of the decision that Judge Kavanaugh initially issued really kind of didn't focus on the burden on this young woman's rights. Um, so I, I definitely think, um, and that testimony highlighted how what we're likely to see in the next, you know, few years, cases that read precedents in a, a very limiting way, how they don't, they focus on burdens other than the burdens on the, the woman in, in question and end up essentially narrowing narrowing women's rights without explicitly saying they are going to they are narrowing the rights. There were a handful of of young folks that, that also testified before the Senate panel here today. One was a student from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas that described in, in pretty harrowing detail the, the events of, of the shooting um, a few months ago there. Um, one Hunter LeChase was an asthmatic youngster from Maine who described the public health effects of or the downwind pollution that state suffers. I hadn't realized that uh, that area was referred to as the tailpipe of the country. I feel bad that some of our uh, tailpipe emissions from LA presumably must wind their way out there. A, a young man, Jackson Corbin, described some pre-existing conditions that he had um, due to, I think, Noonan's disease. I guess, you know, none of those testimonies probably do a whole heck of a lot to, to sway Senate votes, but they seem kind of like maybe advertisements by the Democratic Party. Uh, these are issue areas that are sort of up up for grabs: environmental protections, healthcare with the ACA, and and gun rights that that the the court will will, will wrestle with. And um, it seems like you know at least interesting in, in, in a poignant manner to to present those causes in front of the committee. If you had thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And this really moving testimony from these three young people who just did a, a really powerful job of describing some of these issues at stake. Um, and it was really, this was probably the best chance for Democrats to, to spotlight these important issues. There's, there's power to having, you know, a 13 year old or, you know, a teenager talk about these issues, talk about, you know, holding their friend as, as their friend, you know, takes a last breath or, these health issues that they have, that there's no way, you know, a senator just kind of reciting these issues would move people in the same way. But I think fundamentally, you're right, this is this is for the base. This is to, to probably to appeal to some people who might have been on the line about whether Judge Kavanaugh was the, the right, um, some voters who might have been on the line. But I think everyone knows this is this is not fundamentally going to change anyone's vote. The only thing that you know might have changed anyone's vote is if someone, one of the senators, had gotten Kavanaugh to say something incredibly stupid, or some documents had come out that was that were bombshells. But nothing, nothing on this level was going to change any of the votes. But it still made for a really powerful reminder of what's at stake here. At least a, a few of Judge Kavanaugh's law clerks were present as well to put in several good words for him. One or a couple of different points I thought were interesting that one of his clerks, Luke McLeod, and another, Rebecca Tableson, uh, an African-American man and, and, and a woman, mentioned that 
Judge Kavanaugh does better than many judges at that level of hiring and, and promoting both minorities and, and women in, in the ranks, which seems like a interesting contrast to, to some of the themes that came out over the week regarding concerns as to the judges' thoughts on concerns as to how the judges' opinions might tend to roll back constitutional protections relating to, to women and minorities. I'd be curious your thoughts on, on that. So, yeah, it's actually, it's a really interesting point. And I think it's unquestionably true that Judge Kavanaugh had a really remarkable record on hiring women and racial minorities as clerks. Um, as, as Luke McLeod pointed out, of Kavanaugh's 48 clerks, 13 are racial minorities, which is really high. I mean, it's, Sad that that is is remarkable, but it, it is remarkable, and it, so I think it is really true that he has more than many judges made a real effort to have a, a diverse set of clerks. Um, but as Melissa Murray, who's an, an NYU professor and a former Berkeley interim dean, um, testified, that the question here, at least in her perspective, isn't about whether or not he's a kind person, because everyone seems to agree he is, um, or whether he did a good job mentoring a group of women and clerks from extremely elite law schools. But the question is really how this confirmation is going to affect women across America who are not going to be from nearly the same sort of elite background um, as his clerks are. Yeah, there definitely was a decent chunk of the testimony supporting Judge Kavanaugh that focused kind of more on just what sort of person he was. I think Paul Clement, the veteran SCOTUS advocate, said he has a very good temperament, seems like he's a good guy, uh, which you don't always get in, in high-profile uh, judges. And I forget exactly who the witness was, reference that he likes to drink Budweiser and eat hamburgers. Of course, it makes sense that those things would be brought up by those witnesses, but certainly less central to the, the more salient points uh, at issue here. I want to ask you a question about some things that went out on outside of the hearing in the last couple of days. Uh, kind of a raft of different documents have been released, largely by Democratic senators, and a couple were put forth to support some some pretty you know, uh, pretty interesting claims or um, some, some claims that Brett Kavanaugh had made false statements before the panel. Senator Patrick Leahy mentioned this when he was questioning the judge, but then also released some documents suggesting that Brett Kavanaugh had misled the panel here and also on previous hearings relating to his relation to some George a George W. Bush judicial nomination. And then I think earlier today, Senator Feinstein tweeted out an article that made the claim Brett Kavanaugh had made at least five false statements this week. So, you know, pretty bold assertions. Do you think any of those claims kind of have merit or will have any sort of sticking power or make an effect on folks either in the Senate or in the public more generally? Probably not. I don't think there's anything that is the sort of smoking gun, you know, known falsehood that would be needed for that. Um, and in some degree, it's hard to imagine anyone making it through this sort of intense questioning by extremely skilled advocates without mm-hmm. somehow contradicting something that's said in the previous 50 years, right? There was a, um, a pop culture personality who tweeted out, Senator Harris is so skilled, I'm thinking I might have had a conversation with someone at the Castlewood Law Firm. <laughs> because particularly Senator Harris, Senator um, Booker are just, were doing a really 
excellent job of trying to pin down, you know, pin down statements and, and catch him in contradictions. And the problem is there's always people are inclined to give you some degree of flexibility when it's a question of issues that can change over time or issues that you might just honestly not remember. I think, you know, everyone's had the sensation of not being able to remember something that was not that long ago with total clarity. And, oh, I guess I, I did meet that person. Um, so I don't think probably most of those are, are going to be the sort of, they don't seem like the sort of thing that's going to derail a nomination. Great. Then maybe just uh, one last one to close. Do you have any other general thoughts about the hearings overall, the impressions that were made by the judge, um, perhaps any any senators on the panel, anything else about, about the events that uh, have now concluded? I think one of the things that was most striking to me um, is the fact that Judge Kavanaugh wouldn't push back against any of um, President Trump's criticism of other judges. So, you know, there are several times where people try to press him on what he thought about, you know, Trump's statement saying the Justice Department shouldn't prosecute Republicans because it will hurt their chances, or whether he thought it was appropriate for the president to say Justice Ginsburg's mind is shot, or whether it was appropriate for Trump to attack um, a judge in the, the lawsuit in the Trump University because of his nationality. You know, and he just, you know, said, I, I'm not going there. I'm not going within three zip codes of answering that question and really refused to do it in a way that I think was in somewhat striking in contrast to Justice Gorsuch. Um, so when he was in his confirmation hearings, he did express some concern there. He, um, he said he found statements, particularly criticisms of, of judges disheartening and demoralizing. And as we know from a recent, from David Kaplan's new book that came out, Trump administration pressured him to walk back those comments and just, of course, say, look, I'll just get on a plane and fly home to Colorado if this pressure continues. I am not walking those back. And so I'm sure because of that experience, this was part of the conversation with Kavanaugh, they, they might have gotten a verbal commitment from him just not to go there. And it's certainly safer for him because he would absolutely risk the wrath of the presidency if he, you know, if he did echo those same sorts of concerns that Justice Gorsuch mentioned. And refusing to do it isn't the sort of thing that's going to block his confirmation. Um, at the same time, the fact that he wouldn't is, is the sort of thing that I did find striking and a little bit, a little bit disheartening. Um, yeah. but, but in general, you know, I think it, it wasn't, there weren't any, shocking developments in the hearing. I think everyone, you know, performed ab about as anticipated. And, you know, it is unlikely that the confirmation hearings will have make much of a difference one way or the other. Um, but it certainly, it is interesting just to reflect how, uh, how much longer and more intense these processes are. Um, George Washington's first Supreme Court nominations, he nominated six people and they were all confirmed within two days of the nomination um, before some of them even knew they were nominated. And so it's certainly, it's a much more, you know, intense process we have, whether it makes much of a difference these days is, is more open for debate. Yeah. As a, as an originalist, I'm sure Brett Kavanaugh would have appreciated having a confirmation process uh, like, like that. Exactly. In any event, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll find out soon enough uh, exactly how the, uh, the most important aspect of these confirmation 
hearings conclude, but we'll leave it there um, for now. Anna Rose Matheson, partner with the California Appellate Law Group. Thanks very much for being back on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Great to be back. And that's a wrap for the Daily Journal's coverage of the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Thanks again to my guest today, Anna Rose Matheson. Thanks also to my production team here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in to our shows this week. It is greatly appreciated. Stay tuned next week for more appellate law coverage. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you then. Have a great week. <laughs>